Welcome to the Perp Web Podcast, hosted by Joe Bosch. So welcome to Perp Web 66. Here is my esteemed co-host, Tammy Sparacino. Hello. Uh, host of the Tammy Sparacino Journal Club. And, uh, and hopefully one day in the very near future, you will be host of all of this. So, because <laughs> I've, I've about had enough. We've had, some, we've had a rough time. We're going to have some good discussions today, I think. And, uh, we have that, a very interesting topic. I think it is. I think it, because you did your first full case of this just the other day. So I'm going to be yeah. very interested to hear. A couple hear, weeks ago. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago. It seems like just the other day to me to hear what your perspective on that was. So I'll go ahead and do the lecture. Um, it's not terribly long, but it's going to occupy the first hour. And then the second hour is going to be, I have a whole list of topics that we're going to have. So I think very um, uh, uh, controversial debate and discussion about. So I'm really looking forward to it. I tried to pick some really, uh, some really good topics. I think you're going to like the program today. I really do. Um, okay, so... Uh, we're ready for the slides. We can go with it. Non-ischemic open heart or open mitral valve surgery using a technique of systemic hyperkalemia. Now, we've looked at this once before with Dr. Matoyer, um, and we did a full program on it. We had a lot of cool surgical video, and whenever you do anything with Dr. Matoyer and probably any cardiac surgeon, they are so caught up in the surgical aspect of it. Yes. But this talk today is, uh, you know, I'm not a surgeon. I, 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 I am a frustrated one. I wanted to be. Mm. I wish I had been. Mm -hmm. um, I really enjoy. You have the temperament for it. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. Um, I really do. I really enjoy it. And uh, I do like watching that and, and really understanding what's going on there. I think that's actually something a little missing in perfusion is so many perfusionists spend their time in a chair behind the pump and they never really look and see what's happening. Now, mm. some do. Mm -hmm. And I think you become a better perfusionist when you, you know, not, be a, not actually be a surgeon or an assistant, but at least have a good, not, good understanding of what you're looking at. Does the heart look really empty? Does it look mm -hmm. full? Does it look like it's beating happy? Does it look like it's, uh, you know, especially if it's open, you know, how much blood are they getting back in their face? What can you do to help? Um, those oh, kinds of things. Or even understanding what comes next, because if you know what comes next up there, you know what comes next for you. Yes. Am I going to be giving some cardioplegia? Mm -hmm. Do I need to be rewarming right now? Mm -hmm. All that kind of stuff. So anyway, with that said, uh, that's what our talk is about today. So minimally invasive cardiac surgery, kind of known as MIX, transfers the pain from the patient to the surgeon. Now, this is a very popular term, but I actually view it in a lot of ways as it transferring the pain from the patient to the surgeon and then to the perfusionist. Yes. Yes. Because it is not, it, it comes with a lot of challenges associated with that. So what are the advantages of doing mix or minimally invasive cardiac surgery? Well, you know, if you can avoid or eliminate a sternotomy, um, well, that's really helpful for the patient. You know, sternotomies are not benign. 
Um, there can be all kinds of problems, very low, you know, sternal wound infection, but a sternal wound infection can be devastating uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, obviously, infection, ventilation time, so time to extubation is much sooner. The overall recovery time and length of stay in the hospital is much uh, reduced. And of course, one of the big things is cosmesis. You know, if you're a 35 or 40 year old woman who you needs to have an isolated mitral valve and you can get away with a small right anterior thoracotomy incision that can be easily hidden with a, with a bathing suit or something like that, versus a big sternotomy, I think you're going to, uh, I think you would want that, yeah. you know? And, uh, and, I, and I think that men can be, you know, similar, especially if they're young. It really makes a difference, I think. So in the old days, um, this is something that you would typically see. And uh, the disadvantages of mix for mitral valve, of course, I think that the old what used to be heart port and then turned into port access was a devastatingly bad system. It hurt a lot of people. And it was, some people were really, really good at it, but heart port in particular really did a lot of damage. Port access, I just think it's, it's renamed the same junk. Uh, but I'm very opposed to it. I've always been very anti that system. Mm -hmm. um, but it does work. Um, and there were some people quite successful. You have to have two radial lines. You have to uh, make sure the balloon is positioned just properly, the endo balloon. Mm -hmm. You're flowing through now a very small access line. Your arterial uh, uh, cannula is about the size of it, a 12 or 13 French maybe at best, mm -hmm. maybe even smaller in some cases. Balloon migration during the case can occur easily when you're just giving cardioplegia or turning the vent on or a variety of things like that. Um, of course, you have to be concerned about stroke when anytime you bring something up around the arch vessels, right? It's on the right side. You can look at all that stuff. And then floating that all-important coronary sinus catheter was always such a, a labor-intensive thing. And the, some, I mean, some places I would see spend three and four hours just getting the lines in the patient mm -hmm. to be able to do the procedure. And I just think it just took too long. So fibrillatory arrest, of course, I'm going to talk a little bit about that because that was a, a, a technique that was popularized by Dr. Patrasic in uh, Vanderbilt, as a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. um, there's the uh, approach of the articulating clamp and this very long cardioplegia needle. Uh, they, I think they kind of call it a pig sticker sometimes, something like that that was pop, very popular with Dr. Wynn, Tom Wynn. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, of course, he's in California now, but he was very good at it. Mm -hmm. And he could use these tools very effectively and very safely. But cardiac surgery is not always done by those technically exceptional people, right? Yeah. You know, cardiac surgery, that, it's not to say that these people that do it, that may not be technically, technically exceptional with this particular procedure are not in their own right technically exceptional. Mm -hmm. They are cardiac surgeons, and I, I give them that credit and respect. They can do something I can't do, certainly. Um, but it still requires a certain almost innate skill to really use these tools in those small holes well, 
and make them do what you need them to do. And getting back to what we always say, correct patient selection. It's, mm -hmm. it's not, uh, you know, the larger patients, it can be very difficult to do some of these procedures. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's absolutely correct. So I tried to approach this, and this is going back to, uh, to 2003, and I wanted to talk a little bit just briefly about the benefits and limitations of uh, systemic hyperkalemic arrest for MVR. Then I'm going to talk a little bit about how the idea evolved, the particular case that I did the first time, uh, the reason we used it, and sort of my evolution of thought as to how did I come up with this idea. Um, so visualization, when you do min uh, minimally invasive mitral valve through a red anterior, thoraco anterior thoracotomy, is just excellent. Mm -hmm. It's much better than through a sternotomy. Mm -hmm. It's really incredible. The perfusionist, if you stand on the surgeon's side of your pump, is on the surgeon's side of the table, you can look over their shoulder and you can literally see, see everything. so much. Mm -hmm. It's really impressive. Um, but if you use this technique of hyperkalemia, there's a significant reduction in the amount of surgical instrumentation you need in the hole vis-a-vis -vis the clamp and the cardioplegia. You also, it is a no-touch of the aorta technique, which is something that is very valuable. You know, that if you don't touch, if you don't have to touch the aorta at all, um, you are going to greatly reduce your uh, stroke risk. Uh, there is no ischemic time whatsoever. You never put the clamp on the aorta. You never stop blood flow to the heart. And therefore, the heart never has an ischemic time, albeit protected with the use of cardioplegia, whether it be traditional Buckberg or Plegisol or the uh, Del Nido solution. Uh, because of that, you have a lot less hemodilution and, of course, potentially therefore, less RBC transfusions. There's a shorter time in the OR and pump time, which is a little bit questionable because, you know, the hyperkalemia technique can at times make the time a little longer. But in the overall scheme of things, I think that if you time it right and you have good patient selection, as you mentioned, um, it really reduces the length of time of the operation itself. Um, requires, however, some of the pitfalls requires bicarb-based zero-potassium fluids, which are not a common fluid to have in just any hospital. It's a special order, unless you do CRRT, but the zero-potassium zero is going to be a special order item. Uh, easy to get, but you have to order it. Um, and Which means you have to plan in advance. You always have to plan in advance, yeah. correct. And they have a shelf life. So if mm -hmm. you buy a case of 10 and you use four bags or five bags in, uh, in six months, then you're going to be uh, throwing, uh, uh, throwing a lot of that away. Um, it requires a very strong understanding of CVVH and zero balance ultrafiltration. It requires cooperation between anesthesia and perfusion, and that is very, very, very important. Um, and, uh, and, but on a plus side, there's also significant cost reduction doing it this way. Again, you don't have the same instrumentation, you don't have the cost of the 
uh, of the uh, cardioplegia needle. You don't have the cost of the cardioplegia. There's a lot of things that you don't have the cost of because you simply don't need them. You still need all the stuff that you need to do mixed surgery with an articulating clamp and with a, uh, with a long cardioplegia needle, but you don't need those things. You still need the same stuff that they would need. And the endo balloon, of course, that's a very expensive product. So there is a significant cost savings doing it with this technique. Um, now, one thing that is very important to know is that you cannot have any more than one and two-thirds plus AI. Anything over that, if you're in the two, if you're not less than two plus AI, your amount of back bleeding is going to be too much for you to keep up with, and uh, you're not going to be able to, the surgeon won't be able to see and do the operation. So anything, you know, one to one and a half plus, probably okay. I've done it where they have said it looked like two plus, uh, but wasn't three plus or wasn't like really strong two plus. It was iffy, um, and we did fine. Uh, but I've also seen it where it's been three plus and uh, opened it up, and it was a, a it was a nightmare. It was a, we had to fix that problem and then convert. Mm -hmm. It was just impossible to do that uh, procedure in that way. So you have to have, I prefer a competent aortic valve or just trace AI, and you should be okay there, I think. So what is the foundation of this concept? So I guess it was 2006, plus or minus, there was a 76-year-old female that was a status post cabbage times four several years back with a patent uh, lima to the LED. All of her graphs were patent, but the, the lima to the LED was patent. The CT showed the lima very vulnerable for re-sternotomy. It was right underneath the sternum and kind of stuck to it. Uh, she presented with what was then isolated severe mitral regurgitation. The surgeon did the procedure was Dr. Gary Jones out of Alexandria, Louisiana. You all probably remember him. He did the... Uh, he did the cannabinoid one uh, lecture for us uh, mm -hmm. back several several years ago. He came to the New Orleans conference mm -hmm. all the time. Um, super, super nice guy, uh, really good surgeon, very talented. He wasted his, I hate to say it, but he wasted his career in Alexandria, Louisiana, to be frank with you. Uh, but he was, even though I'm Joe, but he was, uh, but he was happy. You know, he's happy and uh, he's doing well. Um, we were discussing, and it's kind of he approached me one day and said, hey, do you know where to find a 60-cycle fibrillator? And I remember using those back in when I first started in perfusion in 1977. We used them because we did intermittent cross-clamping. Mm -hmm. So we would fibrillate the heart, turn the flow down on the pump, clamp the aorta, come back up, do the distal, come down on flow, take the aorta cross-clamp off, defibrillate the heart, and then, you know, let it be, do the proximal, and then we would go back and forth like that. So intermittent cross-clamping was how we did uh, the cases back then, unless it was an aortic valve. Then you had to hold the coronary perfusers in the ostea, the metal ones, um, and that was our job too. So we had to do, so we switched off pumping cases or assisting in the field. Wow. And that's kind of how I was trained, um, which was a great experience, actually. But anyway, he approached me with that, and I was like, well, what for? And he sort of explained it to me. And, uh, and I know that Dr. Patrasic did it and did it successfully, 
but remember what I said, not, and I, I do love Dr. Jones, but just because you can maybe doesn't mean you should, mm -hmm. because if you don't have a lot of experience doing these mini mitrals like this, it could take you a little longer than it might take Dr. Patracic. And we all know that there's some serious concerns. In fact, I'll show you some information on this about letting a heart fibrillate long-term mm -hmm. in the AT3 or ATP stores yeah. that get depleted even when that heart is cold and empty because that's one of the arguments as well. If it's cold and it's empty and fibrillating, you should be okay for a period of time. But what is that period of time? Mm -hmm. um, so that's something that you have to be concerned about. So I wanted to bring this article up because it's the actual article that I used and it was published in 1977 to look at the effects of long-term fibrillation on the myocardium and uh, the problems that can be associated with that. So I use this article sort of as a, a, a validation of, I don't think having doing this under fibrillatory arrest is a good idea. Um, and then I took into consideration, well, how much potassium does it take to actually arrest the heart and I thought about the cardioplegia solutions that we were using and there were some that had 80 milliequivalents per liter in the bag and there were mm -hmm. some that had you know 40 some that had 20 it just depended on the formula mm -hmm. then there was a high and a low and all of this kind of stuff and uh, so the, I got I've found this, and this was in this, this uh, the History, Physical, and Laboratory Examinations, third edition, Clinical Methods, and I think it's very important information, so I'm just going to read it if I may, you'll indulge me. The resting potential on ventricular myocardium is about negative 84 millivolts at an extracellular potassium concentration of 5.4. Raising the K concentration to 16.2 and that's basically millimoles per liters that's mm -hmm. roughly equivalent to milliequivalents per liter because it's the how many valence and there's only one, so you don't have this factor that you have to include in there, raises the resting potential to negative 60 millivolts at a level which muscle fibers are inexcitable to ordinary stimuli. When the resting potential approaches negative 50 millivolts, sodium channels are inactivated resulting in diastolic arrest of cardiac activity. So I used that, which came from, I'm sorry, from the practical approach to cardiac anesthesia, and then the clinical methods was the next section down. Total body potassium is approximately 55 milliequivalents per kilogram of body weight. Of this amount, 98% is in the intracellular department. We all know that, primarily in the muscle, skin, subcutaneous tissue, and red blood cells, and 2% is in the extracellular department. Therefore, in a 70-kilogram man with a total body weight, uh, with a total body potassium of approximately 3,750 milliequivalents, or approximately 3,675 MEQs, is in the intracellular, and 75 is in the extracellular space. Mm -hmm. The intracellular potassium concentration is on average 150 milliequivalents per liter. And the ratio of intracellular to extracellular potassium is the major determinant of the resting membrane potential and plays a crucial role in the normal functions of the cells, specifically those with inherent excitability, like myocardium. 
This very high concentration difference is maintained by, of course, the sodium-potassium ATP, uh, ATPase enzyme that act, it basically active transport, okay? It requires energy uh, uh, into the cell while moving sodium, moves potassium into the cell, sodium out of the cell. So I looked at all of this and I said, okay, so that's how our cardioplegia works. If I give this patient 300 milliequivalents of potassium, I'm pretty sure the heart's going to stop. Mm -hmm. And it's roughly less than 10% of the total body potassium load, so I should be able to remove it. Mm -hmm. So I went a little step further than that, and I also researched that I didn't find the article, but it may be online, but I wasn't able to find the actual article that I used in preparation for doing this technique the very first time, but it had to do with some kid that um, overdosed on potassium and had a uh, potassium level of greater than nine was all it said. They didn't know how high it actually was. Hmm. And they were able to resuscitate that patient. But what I took from it was that that amount of potassium given to that person, because they said it in the article, had no long-term sequelae associated with it. Hmm. There were no ill effects effects from it. The only ill effect was that his heart wasn't working very well. And they corrected that with the uh, with glucose and uh, and insulin and mm -hmm. and some other things and you know basic treatment for hyperkalemia. And uh, actually I think they dialyzed that patient and uh, got the potassium down and the patient ended up doing just fine. So here is a, uh, a, a little graph, a little diagram, several of them. And if you look here, it basically tells you that you have 60% water, 33% in the extracellular, 66% intracellular, 25% interstitial, and 8% blood as you divide that, uh, that uh, the blood plasma as you divide that extracellular component up. So in, in basically most people, you've got 42 liters total with approximately, depending on your hematocrit, three liters of that are in the intravascular space as plasma. So I'll just go ahead and circle that there. Uh, I thought we picked a different color, didn't I? Oh, it just ended up red, but that's all right. I can fix that. So total of 42 liters. And then if you look over here, the plasma concentrations right here, you see potassium at four. Interstitial, interstitial, I'm sorry, fluid concentrations about 4.1, but the intracellular is 150. So mm -hmm. that's a huge difference, and that's a lot of potassium, 150 milliequivalents per liter. That's a lot. Mm -hmm. So cardioplegia varies by composition, delivery methods, temperature, and additives. However, all solutions must include potassium chloride, somewhere on average between 15 and 35 milliequivalents per liter, and that's what is important for inducing cardiac arrest or diastolic arrest. And once this was all said and done, and we actually did the procedure, very interesting, I've changed the technique tremendously from the first one that I did, and I can talk a little bit about that, but I don't have a diagram of it. There is a diagram in this publication, and it's actually the first report 
of using this technique, and I'm really very proud of this, actually. Um, it worked very well, but I used actually dialysis, diffusive clearance versus convective clearance in this particular case to clear the potassium. So I, I didn't use as much fluid at first, but recognized very early that as I continued to recirculate the fluid as dialysate, the potassium was equalizing and it wasn't clearing it as fast. And that's what made me change it to convective. And I can explain that in the diagram of how that all evolved. But if you look at the diagram from this article, I actually did it with just basically mm -hmm. dialysis on the pump using a hemoconcentrator and the fluid running countercurrent through it. And I just changed the fluid. I used a cardiotomy reservoir and then just would change the fluid every so often in order to get the potassium out. Huh. And it worked. Yeah. It worked. Yeah, it wasn't as seamless. It's easier to do it this way. And I think there's a secondary benefit to doing it with convective clearance. But we could discuss that as we kind of move along here. Um, so here you see the venous blood coming from the patient. Okay. And it's coming down here to your venous reservoir. And then you see it coming down here into your centrifugal pump, out of your centrifugal pump, into your membrane oxygenator, and then over here to the patient. And then if you look over here, you see hemo, what I call hemoconcentrator 1. Hemoconcentrator 1 is basically what is our typical hemoconcentrator that we use on every case. It's right here. And you can see that it is a passive flow as opposed to over here, hemoconcentrator 2, which has a roller pump associated with it. So this is just your standard roller, your hemoconcentrator that I use during the procedure from the minute we go on pump to the time we are ready to start removing the potassium. That's the one that I use. And there, are, there is a reason I do it that way, and I can explain it a little bit more. You'll notice that coming out of the membrane oxygenator is this roller pump that I talked about. And that usually is the cardioplegia. So I use the cardioplegia pump because I'm not going to use cardioplegia. Now you can wire it and keep it and prime it and have it ready in case you need to convert, or you can just take it out. It depends on how confident you are that you're not going to have to convert. Uh, but that's a decision you can make. There's a million ways to create this circuit. But in this particular case, the roller pump, it's going into hemoconcentrator 2, and this is what I use to remove the potassium with. And then you see it comes up and it wise right here. This hemoconcentrated blood, but it's reconstituted, is going back to the venous reservoir. And we have our dial dialysate solution here, which I use Duosol, but there's several different brands. It's about the formula, and we're going to go over that formula. And as I am hemoconcentrating this blood here, pulling out the plasma water, I'm returning the plasma water with this, with a fluid that has no potassium in it. Mm -hmm. This over here is a Neptune. I do not suggest you try to do this like I've tried several times with just suction canisters. You take off about 20 to 25 liters, and that's a lot of suction canisters to have building up on the side, on the, on the wall there. And it makes either the nurses really angry <laughs> because they have to throw it out if it's in a place that does it that way, or it makes you have to stay really late because you're moving 
fluid back and forth and they want you to dump it out. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you can use that, that, uh, that uh, solidifier. solidifier and stuff, but it's heavy and uh, they really prefer that you pour it out. So, uh, but I would use, definitely use a Neptune. But you want this under roller pump because you want to flow through this actively. You want there to be as much pressure on the blood side as you can possibly get as opposed to having it just passively going through and possibly overwhelming it. And you want a hemoconcentrator that you can flow about a liter through. So the bigger hemoconcentrators are better for this purpose. Um, the added benefit of doing it this way versus, and if I was doing it with dialysis, what I would do is this line here that you see would go into the hemoconcentrator and then out of the hemoconcentrator and back up to the, to the bags or a reservoir or something like that. Let me erase all these markings, so many markings. Um, but you can do dialysis with a hemoconcentrator, but I don't recommend it. The added benefit of doing it with convective clearance, that is, this is hemoconcentrating and this is reconstituting the plasma water that you're removing down here and going into your effluent. Um, and that takes also out a lot of pro-inflammatory mediators, which is very beneficial. I have seen hearts that went on pump with lower ejection fractions come off very snappy. Now it's transient, mm -hmm. but it's enough to get you off the pump and get them into the unit. And then eventually a day or so later, you usually see them settle back down to wherever their baseline was. And then with the valve repaired over time, they continue to get better and stronger. Mm -hmm. But it really does help you in the getting off pump and initial post-operative phase. If you look over here, the one highlighted in red is the solution that we use. And you see its sodium concentration is 140, its potassium is zero, its calcium is three, mag is one, chloride is 109, lactate is zero, bicarb is 35, and glucose uh, is, uh, is one. So, and I think that's actually 100, so it's, or, or I don't think it's one, actually. Grams per, yeah, grams, grams per, per, yeah, grams per liter, liter, one, one gram per yeah, liter, right. Exactly. So that'd be equivalent to like 100, right? It's 100, like a, a glucose level of 100 or 110. I don't know. Yeah, I think so. Because that's in milligrams, right, per, per liter. Yeah, that's, yeah, I think that, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Right. So this is in grams per liter. Um, but what's important about this to understand is, if let's hypothetically say the potassium in this blood coming out of your, your, your uh, roller pump here, out of, the, out of the membrane, out of your reservoir, the patient's blood, is 13. And you hemoconcentrate, and that's 13. And you put a fluid back in here that is zero. Then I'm going to go over this a little bit and sort of explain how that happens, because all of this ultrafiltrate that goes into this Neptune is isoosmotic. I'm sorry. Isoosmotic. And what does that mean? We're going to talk about that. So I'm going to come back to this and go back to that. But what's also important is let's say the patient's glucose, and this is one of my pearls, don't treat the glucose. Because when you start removing, if the glucose is, let's say, coming out of the patient is 240, but it's only 100 in the bag, that is going to remove glucose. Mm -hmm. So your glucose will come back to normal. 
If your mag is low, it'll come up. If your mag is high, it'll go down. Same with the calcium. Mm -hmm. So it really depends on that concentration gradient, not because it's diffusive, because it's dilutional. Either way, it will right. do the exact same thing. But, and I'm going to go, again, I'm going to go over, I have a good little example of how that works because it's very important. But I need everybody to remember isoosmotic. It's a very important concept that is one of the hallmarks of why this whole thing works. Okay. So what is the process to arrest the heart? Well, we start off, we draw up 200 milliequivalents of potassium in two 50cc syringes. So we have 100 and 100. Um, we have an additional 200 milliequivalents available to us for a total of 400. I have given more than 400, but only one time. Um, and we really needed it to actually arrest the heart. Uh, it was a renal failure patient, and they tolerated high, very high potassiums really well. And the heart just kept beating. It was just amazing. Um, you initiate bypass, you must assure you have good drainage. Look, before you go getting crazy and giving all this stuff, yes. you really need to be looking in there. The surgeon needs to feel secure that the cannula is up where it needs to be, mm -hmm. that the head looks drained, the heart looks drained, you've got good flow, you've got good level, everything looks great. Assure good drainage. I should have starred that. That's a terrible looking star. I'm going to try that one more time. There, that looks better. Assure good drain. It's very important. Start an esmolol bolus and drip immediately before you're going to start arresting the heart. You don't have to do it too early, but you want to do it while you're on pump. Don't do it before you go on pump in case they make them too slow and they don't tolerate the low, the low rate. Get on pump, get stable, make sure everything looks good, give the bolus of esmolol, start the drip, get the heart rate down to, you know, 50, yeah. 60 in that range. Um, lower if you can, but uh, that's usually a really good place to start. Um, and then when they say, okay, we're ready to arrest, you hit the cold button, the full cold button on your heater cooler. You want the blood temperature as cold as you can get it going directly into the coronaries. It's very helpful for needing less potassium. And I think you saw that, actually. Mm -hmm. It really does work. Some people don't like to do it. Some of my, our colleagues that, you know, I trained how to do this. They still, they, they, have, they have adopted new ways of doing it that they think are better. Um, but it works for me every time. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and as soon as I hit that cold button and start crash cooling, just the blood. You're not going to crash cool the patient down to 18 degrees. Yeah. But you're going to start cooling the blood. That's really the key. You start adding the uh, potassium. Now, usually I do about 50 milliequivalent aliquots. You don't want to just slam in 100 milliequivalent, 200 milliequivalents of potassium because if you do, your blood pressure is going to go through the roof. Um, it will cause some significant transient hypertension. So, you know, you can start off with 20, 40, 50, 60, 80, a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And you will watch as that serum potassium starts to rise. You'll see the T waves start to peak. You'll see the QRS get wider, and it just gets 
higher, more tented, wider, and eventually slows way down and just stops. It's very rare that I see the heart fibrillate before it goes asystolic. Mm -hmm. um, it has happened, but it's very rare. And it usually doesn't last long. Uh, but as soon as I get that electrical quiescence, I stop giving anything and I simply turn the heater cooler to standby. Mm -hmm. I do not rewarm it back up. I just put it on standby and let everything equilibrate. Now, one of the things that I had to learn through my experience with this, and I've probably done about, I've probably done 40 cases like this now. It's been a lot. I've done a lot. I did like 26 of them in Alexandria mm -hmm. before I left, and I've probably, I'm sure I have done at least 14 here, if not more. Oh, I think um, more. Yeah. So I've probably done between 30 and 40 of these procedures, and it's, I've had excellent, I mean, incredibly good outcomes. I've had, I've had absolutely no problems associated with this technique whatsoever. I've not had anything happen to the patient that was uh, bad, and therefore, there was nothing ever bad that happened that would be associated to the potassium. I mean, the, all of the patients did very well. So mm -hmm. I think that's uh, very important. Um, but if you start to see a little bit of activity, don't overreact and just give more potassium. The key is to let things settle down because you're giving a lot of potassium at one time and it's going to shift back and forth and try to find what it's going to do. Sometimes I just hit the cold again and let it run for a few minutes and then turn it back to standby and that settles it out again. So I try not to overdo it. Now, if you do get a little activity and they even notice it, because sometimes you'll have electrical activity with no mechanical action mm -hmm. at all. You'll see a little bit of activity on the monitor, and you look in the hole, and the heart's just flat and still as can be. Nobody's saying a word. They're just up there working, and they're happy as can be. I'm going to leave that alone because that's not fibrillatory, so you're not just chewing up ATP. The heart is being perfused the entire time so that itty-bitty bit of electrical activity, even if there was a teeny little bit of sub-myocardium, sub-endocardium, movement that you couldn't maybe see, I don't think the oxygen demand is going to be very high to really make a difference. Mm -hmm. But I think overdoing it on the potassium just doesn't do anything but delay well, you being able to get it out. Right, because then you have to just do that much more. Correct. And then the surgeon's waiting on you. Yes. Yeah. So once you get that initial arrest, you know, just relax. You know, because it's all going to be calm. Even if the heart starts moving uh, more than the surgeon's happy with, hit the cold, give 20, give 40. Wait, see what's going to happen. Don't overdo it. Sometimes you just have to tell them, just be patient. It's going to stop. Give it a second, mm -hmm. and it will stop. Okay, some pearls for the arrest phase. I think these are very valuable. The more volume you have in the reservoir, the more potassium you are going to need to arrest the heart. So what I mean by that is, is that if you have 1,500 in your reservoir, you're going to need X amount of K. 
if you have 700 or 600 in your reservoir, you're going to need x amount of k minus whatever that factor is. I'll just put f. So you're, you want to have a lower level without compromising safety in your reservoirs, wherever you're comfortable for mm -hmm. your flow and your conditions and the type of pump you have and all of that stuff, mm -hmm. other ancillary peripheral responsibilities. So you have to make that decision yourself. Um, but the lower that reservoir level, the less potassium you're going to need to get the heart to stop. Now, this is why your refined technique is to have a separate hemoconcentrator for volume control, correct? Well, I use the primary one, yes. hemoconcentrator one, well, that's just what I mean. for that. Meaning there are two in line and one is for volume control. Correct. Yes. Yes. Versus, yes. right, versus reversal. Yes. Yes, absolutely. That's absolutely true. You want a lot of horsepower. Yes. Yes, that is something. And I guess that does increase the cost because you have to use two hemoconcentrators. You don't have to, but I suggest it. Yeah, I think it was. I think it would make the, sense. It, makes it, sense. it made it smooth. It makes, I think it does. It makes it a little, and the incremental increase in cost is pretty small. Probably. You know, it's like, I think it's like 80 or $90. I was going to say less there. than 100 Yeah, they're yeah. pretty inexpensive. So the more value, so this is another thing, another pearl. When you go on pump, get your volume where you want it mm -hmm. as soon as you can. Don't be afraid to start hemoconcentrating right away. Again, the lower your level, the less potassium you're going to need, the faster the effect is going to be. Do not give the KCL rapidly. Give it really fast, and your blood pressure is going to go off the scale. You're going to have no flow. It's going to be bad. Don't do it. You have to be careful with this. doesn't mean you can't give a bolus of 40 or even 50 and sit back and wait and see what it does, but I would start with 20 or 30. Yeah, and I think then, I did you mine. Know, what did we have? We had um, drawn up in 60cc syringes, yeah. and I gave 30 and then I waited, and then mm -hmm. I gave 30. Mm -hmm. Then we had the next syringe up there, and I don't even believe I got through, uh, I got through two syringes on my case, and then that was it. That was it, that's all we gave. Yeah. Yeah, we never drew any more up. Yeah. Um, and then keep cooling the blood until you are flatlined. Very important. Do not use insulin to control the glucose. You don't want a bunch of leftover insulin. Now, as soon as you, because if you're trying to keep the heart arrested, right, and you give insulin for a high glucose, you're defeating your purpose. The case is going to come down. Correct. <laughs> yeah. You're going to drive the potassium intracellular, and you're going to start seeing activity. You're going to have to give more potassium. Mm -hmm. The glucose is high for a little while. It's not going to hurt them, 240, 250. I mean, that's not the end of the world. People walk around all the time with a glucose of 300. We don't like to do that, but in these particular cases, you're better off leaving it alone and let the he let the duosol or whichever iteration of this bicarb-based physiologic fluid, uh, it's easier to say duosol, sorry, um, treat your glucose because it will and very effectively. Uh, do not overreact when you see some activity. Let's see what it's going to do. A lot of times there's shifting going on and it's, you know, you just got to wait. Don't bother measuring the potassium unless you have a device that reads to 18. Because if you're using an iStat, it's just going to say greater than 9. Sometimes you send it to the lab and it just says greater than 9. 
unless you're using a device that will read up to 18, because most of the potassiums are around 11 to 13 is about where we usually settle it out. And I've measured it several times, so I sort of have an idea of where it's going to fall. Um, but there are several devices that you can get. Uh, one, who, which is the one that I like the most, um, is the Siemens Rapid Point 550, I think it is, which reads potassiums to 18. It's a point-of-care device, but not handheld like yeah. an iStat. It's more of a bench platform, rolling cart kind of thing. It's like a gem. Yeah, I, I don't know what gem reads. I'm not 100% sure, but I think radiometer reads to 18. Gem may do the same thing. It seems like gem probably I, I don't does. know if don't they know. do. But, uh, but I do prefer those devices over iStat. Um, but and, you can, I used an iStat, and it was fine. Yeah, and we sent it to the lab, and they said, uh, right, it was greater than 9. But you have to be comfortable. You also well, had the it, benefit of not being the first time you ever did it. If you're out there in mm -hmm. our audience and they're going to do this and it's the first time they ever did it, they may want to actually know what that potassium well, is. Well, and you need to also be communicating with the, the lab because, believe me, you get a very frantic call oh, when yes. the potassium's that yes. high. Yes, That happened Off to us scale. Yes. even though we had Even though we them. told them. Yeah. But the particular technician that ran it didn't get the memo. Right. And freaked out. Yes. Yes. Urgent call to the room. <laughs> Urgent. <laughs> yes, we know. We know. It was pretty funny, actually. <laughs> so the process for removal of the potassium. So first thing we do, stop the esmolol drip. Now, you don't have to. You can leave it running for a while. And it may help. To reduce the, um, you know, any kind of fibrillation, although um, I haven't seen a heart fibrillate after this uh, procedure for a number of years. So I, I don't know that you really have to keep the Esmolol going, but you can if you want to. Rewarm in the usual fashion. Now, that's something that I, uh, I hope it gets in the pearls, but if it's not, remind me if you don't mind. Okay. Run your hemoconcentrators at full speed. Turn them on, hook them to the Neptune, put the Neptune at 400, and let them rip. High flow through them. Make sure your flow probe is distal to the hemoconcentrator so that you make sure you know what you're flowing to the patient and not the recirculation. Um, you'll know what your flow is, obviously, with the hemoconcentrator, too, because you're running that through a roller pump. Use replacement fluid uh, to flow and maintain your level. Don't use saline and uh, don't use uh, Normasol. It has potassium in it, okay? So you want to use uh, the, uh, you want to make sure you use the Duosol and use the replacement fluid flow to maintain your level. And let me kind of just give you an idea. I'm going to go back to this slide right here and erase all of my things here. Um, let's see, it won't uh, clear pen markings. There you go. So basically what you see here is this Duosol, this formula right here, is in these bags here. And there's a roller pump here. So I have this hemoconcentrator passive and drawing ultrafiltrate out. I have this one I'm pumping through drawing ultrafiltrate out. 
I get my level in my reservoir of, let's just say, for the sake of argument, it's right here, okay? Now, as that level starts to fall, what I do is I increase this pump speed, and it makes that level come back up. If the level is going up and I can't increase the hemoconcentration, I just simply slow this pump down. So it helps me to find a sweet spot where I can just maintain my level in this reservoir at the level that I want it to be. Yeah, I think I that makes good sense. Yeah, I think I maintain. Like I went on and maybe we had fifteen or sixteen hundred in the reservoir, and so you told me, you know, immediately let's start hemoconcentrating, mm -hmm. and then I got it down to between five and six hundred. I was comfortable running it, and that's mm -hmm. about where I kept it. And then it also makes it. Uh, easier to know that you're going to be consistent with your potassium, right? Mm -hmm. You don't have these big fluctuations. So as soon as I had more volume than that, I just clicked on the hemoconcentrator for volume control and took care of it immediately. Correct. Yes, you can do that. That's exactly right. So you can use the one hemoconcentrator for reversal and the other one to reduce your volume to increase your hemoconcentrator horsepower or run both simultaneously, go full tilt ultrafiltration replacement and increase and decrease your replacement fluid speed yes. to keep your level where you either way works yes 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 um, like i said there's a million ways to do this it, was, it sounds really complicated but i was surprised how uncomplicated it was yes and how pleasant the room is yeah we, um, we had a good 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 experience with it it was pretty seamless absolutely um, use replacement fluid flow to maintain your level. I put that on there. Mm -hmm. And run replacement. And it's, it's going to be with both hemoconcentrators going 700 to a liter a minute. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to do 20 liters, which is about what you need for a potassium of 13 to get it down to 4 to 5, um, you're, uh, uh, that's about 20 to 25 minutes, basically, is what you're going to be. Yeah. Well, and make sure... Um we ran ours, uh, how did we do ours? We did ours through the um, cardioplegia circuit. We did. And we had a bypass in case we had to convert. Convert. But what I was going to say, just a, a little pearl, is most of us have a pressure limit set for your cardioplegia mm -hmm. circuit. Um, so make sure if you're monitoring pressure that you go ahead and uh, know that it, it might run a little higher. We don't typically run our cardioplegia at a liter a minute. Correct. Right. And the uh, pressure through the hemoconcentrator, if I remember right, was about 220. Yeah, it, it was somewhere around there. Mm -hmm. but, just... but that positive pressure is great for making it really just push that plasma Yeah, it's exactly what you membrane. want, but it might be something you hadn't thought of. Because when the alarm went off the first time, it wasn't something I thought of on that case. And I was mm -hmm. like, wait, something's wrong. But... Nothing's wrong. And usually I don't do it that way. Yeah. Because that was a new way to do it. So yeah. we, I'm learning too. And it was yeah. actually a very good way to do it. I liked it. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you can hook it up. You know, there are some uh, concerns about whether the fluid will help to its room temperature and cool the patient mm -hmm. back down. You can run it through your cardioplegia uh, heat exchanger and warm your heat exchanger that way so you don't do that. I, I haven't had that experience. Some of our co my colleagues have, and they, you know, some of your colleagues, and they prefer to put the fluid in a warmer. 
I caution against that. You mean run it across the heat exchanger? No, they put it in a warmer. Oh, the actual blanket warmer. warmer. The blanket warmer. And I caution against that only because I don't know exactly what that temperature is. And so um, I want to control. I I just, I'm concerned about it. Didn't we just, I think we just wrapped ours in a blanket. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some, some some of the guys put it in the blanket warmer. No, but I mean, I think... For us, didn't we mm, just... No, just used it cold. No, I know, but didn't we just have it in a blanket? No. In the room? No. I feel like that's what we did. No. Okay. No. I may have had it on top of a blanket. I didn't have it in a blanket. It wasn't a warm blanket. I just had it in there. Mm. You know, because I just don't... The heat, the, the heat exchanger and the oxygenator is pretty strong. Yeah, yeah. We just, I just haven't had a problem. So, pearls for reversal... The more volume in the reservoir, the slower you remove the potassium. Mm-hmm. You got two liters in the reservoir, three liters in the reservoir. Mm-hmm. It's going to take you a lot longer than if your reservoir level is back down to yeah. five, six hundred. Use insulin sparingly if needed, but depend on the duosol. It really will work if you're hemoconcentrating that fast and replacing. You're not going to need any insulin, but if you do. You know, because the K is high and you want to hurry up, the surgeon gets a little impatient, just go ahead and do it. It won't hurt anything if you give, you know, five or ten. Expect a minimum of 15 liters replacement, but have 20 liters available. Um, The bags come in five-liter bags, so that's four bags. You can only, you get free shipping if you buy 10 cases, that's 20 bags but it only has a shelf life of about six months, maybe four months, depending. And so if you only use it once a year or twice a year, you could get fluid that then goes expired, and then you have to uh, uh, order more fluid. So mm-hmm. it's pick your poison. Mm-hmm. Free shipping, or but if you have too little fluid, yeah. like you break a bag, you only have four, and you break a bag, okay, you want to have enough fluid. Now, it can be made in pharmacy. It's very easy to do. Um, the formula is right there. They can make it for you. Mm-hmm. But you don't want to have four bags to do 20 liters of replacement, break two of the bags that only have 10 liters and right. have a K of, of 7.9 and you can't come off pump. I think what we went with was six to seven bags, knowing we probably use about four. Yes, that yeah. seems reasonable. So have extra. But that's five cases. So 10 bags is five cases. Okay. You get free shipping if it's 10 cases, which is 20 bags. So do line three of these up. Correct. Do a couple, have your mini mitral month and just have all of your stuff Mm -hmm. already. Loop diuretics can be helpful. You know, they're uh, potassium-losing drugs. Be careful with rebound post-pump potassiums, though. So if you go really fast and you think you got it down and you don't wait a long enough time and you haven't really flushed out enough or whatever it may be and you just think you're all that in a bag of chips and you're just not careful, the next thing you know you're getting called from the unit because the patient's potassium is 7.5 and they're starting emergency dialysis and they can code. So you have to be aware of that. So you can go fast as long as you do enough of it or you can, you know, but if you go fast and not enough of it, it might look good right now, but it may not look good a little later. So give it some time. Be patient, okay? 
be careful. Uh, and then pacer wires. This is something that is really not in our purview, but I'm going to just bring it up. And that is when you um, finish the case and the heart's beating and everybody's excited and everybody high fives the first time and they're all excited about this. It just works so great. But they got to put pacer wires on and you come off pump because everybody's so excited. You're never getting those pacer wires on unless you go back on pump. Mm -hmm. So make sure the surgeon puts the pacer wire on the ventricle before, because he'll say, okay, let's come off, fill them up. Oh, that looks great. Go ahead, keep coming down. Come on off. We're breathing. Yeah, that's great. Oh, this is fantastic. And you take the cannulas out of the groin, and then somebody says, are you going to put the pacer wires in? And you cannot get to it. It ain't going to happen. Well, if you're experienced at all with doing any kind of minimally invasive, that should already be a part of that. You know, I hadn't done hyperkalemia cases, but I had done, you know, many, many um, minimally invasive. Mm -hmm. And any time you had a minimally invasive, you know, we had a little note that just hung on the pump that we're... Pacer wires. Did you do the pacer wires, yeah. you know? And you're the hero when you remember to say that. Because, yes. of course, they're like, oh, I was just about to, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're excited. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. They're excited how great it works. Yeah. I love it when they ask, when they when they say, okay, get the, give the protamine. Um, did you want to come off pump first? <laughs> yeah, 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 of course. What are you doing back there? Okay, so isoosmotic ultrafiltration. What do I, what is this? And if you know, of course, then don't worry about this. But for those of you who do not understand this or do not under, know it, then I'll go through it. So let's just say this is a fluid. And I'm going to pick a color. I'm going to pick uh, this mm, pink. And I'm going to fill this. I guess that's kind of red. Okay, so let's just pretend that's all fluid, okay? All the way up to the top. And its potassium level is, I'll pick a different color. Its potassium level is uh, 10. Okay? Okay. Equals 10. And over here, I'm going to pick a different color fluid. I'm going to fill this all the way up. And this one is going to have a K of K equals zero. Okay. K equals zero. Okay. Now I'm going to come over here and we're going to take a hemoconcentrator and I'm going to run this blood through the hemoconcentrator and back up here and I'm going to pull off ultrafiltrate. UF. And we're going to fill this up with yellow. Okay. That comes out green looking, but okay. That's all right. Whatever color it is. It's a different color. So here's the ultrafiltrate. So if this potassium, and I used 
uh, I don't remember which I used, but if this potassium here is 10, this ultrafiltrate potassium will also be 10 because the ultrafiltrate through the hemoconcentrator is isoosmotic. Ultrafiltration does not selectively remove any ions. Mm -hmm. So whatever is in this blood plasma water will be the same exact, whether it's potassium, sodium, glucose, it makes no difference what it is, whatever ion it is or cation it is, it will be exactly the same in the ultrafiltrate. After I've removed all of that fluid from this other one, and I'm going to go ahead and erase this right here. And I'm going to go back to this. The potassium of this right here is unchanged. K equals 10. It didn't change at all, even though I've removed half of it. This was empty. Now it has ultrafiltrate, and it has a potassium of 10. But this has a potassium of 0. So if this is exactly half, and I put this fluid down to here, and I'll go with my green, and I'll fill this up like this, and then the two of them will mix. Okay, so I poured this fluid in here, and now mixed them all up. Now, this potassium is five. So yes. that's how it works. It's dilutional. Mm -hmm. and there's no selective removal of any of the ions. So, discussion. Any thoughts? Anybody want to call in? Anybody want to ask a question? Anybody want to do anything? What did you think of the first case? Um, I thought it was great. I was a little, I, I wasn't nervous because I had seen pieces of other cases, so I, I knew it worked. Yeah, you had done three or four cases where you did either going on and stopping or the middle of the case. I set or, up or I came at the end of the case. Yes. But I'd never done one from start to finish with my hands. I set it up. I did all of that stuff. And um, so I wasn't really nervous that it wasn't going to work. But I thought it was going to be a lot, just more complicated things to think about. It was pretty easy. You went yes. on pump as usual. You got your volume down to a place where you wanted it to be. You made sure, uh, you know, anesthesia's on board, understanding what's going to happen. So, you know, you have the communication with them about lowering the heart rate at the appropriate time, which we had a great anesthesia yes, there you that have day. To have, you have to have, um, so you have, yes, you have to have good communication and you have to have a good team cohesion. I mean, just like with any case that you don't traditionally do, just like when you do circ arrest cases, we all have to be communicating about mm -hmm. different things, right? Mm -hmm. Or you do a procedure that people aren't used to doing. You just have to make sure everybody understands what the, 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 um, what's going to happen next. So, yes. you know, we went on pump, we controlled the volume, we lowered the heart rate, surgeon was ready, we gave the potassium, we waited, gave a little more potassium, waited, Gave some more. This is all within, you know, 10 minutes of going on pump. You're giving your potassium over, you know, five minutes or 10 minutes, however mm -hmm. much you need. And then the heart stopped. Yeah. Just yes. like that. 
Yes. I know. It's, it is so, I feel, and again, I tend to not be like this, but I am going to be like this today. Okay. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pat myself on the back because uh, I think of all the things that I've done. And I did some real interesting stuff. I mean, I remember an article that I wrote, which actually made it to the National Enquirer, believe it or not. It was published in Lancet, but it made it to the National Enquirer. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how you continue to surprise me with some of these uh, tidbits. But It's true. It's true. So you've been in the National Enquirer. Yes, I was in the National Enquirer. For something respectable. Yes, for something respectable. <laughs> yes, that's true. And that's how my mother found out. She called. That's how I knew it was the National my mother went to the grocery store, picked up this National Enquirer, of which I would never read, but my mother would and did. And she called me when she was re- after she got home after reading it because I was in it. That's how I found out I was in the National Enquirer because they saw that article in The Lancet and republished it and did a thing about it. What was the- their spin on it? So... I mean, it was just a, it was revolutionary new okay, gotcha. valve uh, uh, repair technique. Yeah. Okay. And it had to do with the aortic valve. And it was for um, the surgeon that I did this with. His name was Jack Sternlieb. Um, he trained up in Mayo and he was a, he was a really talented, say so this guy was a talented surgeon. This is back in the late 80s. Um, so about 87, 88. And uh, he was a super talented surgeon. He was using, he was doing interrupted Lima to the LAD with interrupted 80 suture, 80 proline. Back yeah. in the day when 80 proline was very unique, very not used very often. Yeah. And uh, his outcomes and his anastomoses were just were beautiful. I mean, they were beautiful. I have to say, I. It was beautiful to me, and I don't even, again, I'm not a surgeon. I don't understand what they're doing. Um, I kind of do, but I don't. You understand what I mean by that. Yeah, I know. But he was a talented guy, very uh, smart, good doctor. Um, I enjoyed working with him. But we we saw a lot during that period of time of idiopathic calcific aortic stenosis in an older population. And, of course, he's like, you know, we, we were always having to put, valves in them and well put you know mechanical valve you got the anticoagulation problem of course it was back in the time when the bjork shiley valve was the double strutted valve was fracturing and they were losing pieces you put a bioprosthesis in them and some of these you know people they weren't really made that well back then and these were relatively healthy i mean these were young 80 year old people okay they were playing golf every day they had still probably 10, 20 years that we're going to live to 100, all right? These people were in good health. Um, and he was looking for an alternative to, uh, to doing a, uh, a valve replacement for the aortic valve. And so I suggested using the CUSA, mm-hmm. the ultrasonic device that they use for removing tumors and stuff. Oh, and I'm it, not familiar with that. Yeah, it's, a, it's an ultrasonic debridement device. You can actually, you know, take uh, edges with it, tumor out, things oh, like that. Okay. It's used, I think it's, I can't remember all the uses that it has. It's been such a long time ago. So what um, did he do? So what we did was, well, I came up with the idea and I thought it would work. And I said, well, why don't we do this? I mean, if you're going to replace the valve, right, we're already there. So do use the CUSA 
to ultrasonically debride the calcium from mm -hmm. the leaflets and get the leaflets to where they're pliable. Yeah. And if it looks good, I'd leave it. Yeah, but don't do it. But if it doesn't look good, then you could just replace the valve. We're going to add probably, you know, 30 minutes to the procedure, but is that really the end of the world? And uh, he agreed to do it, and we did it. And we did, like, eight cases. Um, That's and incredible. And we had really good results. I mean, I had, I had filmed it. Um, and we, uh, actually I presented it at a meeting that I went to, uh, that we did one time. I can't remember exactly. It was in California and, uh, but it never really gained in popularity. You know, yeah. I think they just got better with valves and things like that. And it never really became anything. But this one that I did actually has become pretty doggone popular with a lot of people. Well, yeah. and I feel, I feel privileged that I had the opportunity one Somebody like Dr. Jones was willing to try it the first time. Mm -hmm. And then Dr. Matoyer here and Dr. Maniscalco here mm -hmm. and Dr. Duval here and Dr. Badia here are all willing. You know, they, they too now do this. And it's sort of like become common, almost commonplace. And it feels really good to me. Yeah. Because I get beaten up a lot in this business. This is a, <laughs> this is a rough business. This is a full contact sport. And we're in war right now, as you well know, because I can see you on the phone all of the time. So, what have, uh, any other discussion points? Um, no, I don't think so. Any questions from the... Uh, Do from we have the, any comments out no there? No comments, not one comment. What about, the, what about the audience? Anybody in the audience want to get up and ask a question? All right, so how about this? Let's take a break. Okay. And uh, how about, can we do that, David? We can take like uh, five minutes or something like that. I think we did this in an hour. And uh, when we come back, we've got uh, some really good, I think some really neat stuff to go over. I've okay. got some real interesting stuff going forward here. And we're going to be able to uh, go through these slides. I think you're really going to, uh, to enjoy it. Okay, great. So uh, what I want to do is we're going to do something a little different for our second hour. And I've got a, a, we may not get through the list of topics, but I came up with a list of contemporary and perhaps to some degree some controversial topics to go over and talk about um, to, and see if somebody else wants to call in. If they do, we're not, maybe make a comment and we'll try to address their comment, but uh, this is really intended more as an interactive thing than a, uh, a one-sided thing, which is just us. But you and I do have, I think, reasonably different perspectives on a lot of things, and I sure. think that we, the two of us, I think we're gonna do really do justice for this. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to first talk about it. Can you throw that slide up for me? I'm really getting very frustrated with people not wanting to be vaccinated. And it's not necessarily that I have a problem with them not wanting to be vaccinated. It's more the reasons that I'm hearing that they don't want to be vaccinated. And I've heard everything from uh, the vaccine is, is not FDA approved mm -hmm. to everything from that to, well, it's an mRNA uh, 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 vaccine. And, you know, that's pretty sketchy. But you know, we're going to look at what an mRNA vaccine is. Or it's been rushed. Or it's been rushed. Or I don't want the government telling me what to do. Yes. And either one of those and every one of those 
I think if that's what you want to believe, that's fine. Mm -hmm. But don't tell me that we don't know how to create vaccines. And I put this up and I did a lot of work finding this and I think it's very appropriate. The practice of immunization dates back hundreds of years. Buddhist monks drank snake venom to confer immunity to snake bite and variolation, which is smearing of a skin tear with cowpox to confer immunity to smallpox was practiced in 17th century China. Edward Jenner, gentleman on the lower left, mm -hmm. is considered the founder of vaccinology in the West in 1796 after he inoculated a 13-year-old boy with vaccinavirus cowpox and demonstrated it gave that child immunity to smallpox. In 1798, the first smallpox vaccine was developed. Over the 18th and 19th centuries, systemic implementation of mass smallpox immunization culminated in its global eradication in 1979. So, and now smallpox is actually making a resurgence because there are people who believe that if you get smallpox vaccine, it makes you fertile. Um, infertile? Infertile, yes. And uh, thank you. And um, so people aren't taking it in certain where places. Are the, where are they still giving smallpox vaccines? I don't well, know. Well, that's just it. You don't give it anymore because it's, but the, yeah. but the children being born. I see. You know, you get it. You still get a smallpox vaccine. No. You don't? No. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought you did. Mm -mm. Kids don't get smallpox? Nope. Oh, okay. Well, my understanding is is that... It can make a resurgence, but I'm yes. curious what part of the world that that's, that's an issue, you mm -hmm. know? Um, no, like, I, I'm of an age that you don't get smallpox vaccines. No. Really? Now, I've had one, but as an adult in a uh, research study. Huh. Okay, I had mine because it left a mark. That's how you used to know mm -hmm. the school would look for it to let you in. Yeah, I think uh, 19, or in, in, at least in the United States, it was around 1969 to 70 they stopped giving it. So I, I just missed it. Oh, good for you. Yeah. You need a smallpox. Well, you had it because you were yeah. in a study. Yeah, there was a national study done, um, and uh, UT Medical School was one of the, uh, I think, six or seven sites across the country that mm -hmm. uh, participated in it. I guess it was in around 2001. Mm -hmm. That's where I worked. And so, we, you know, they always went around to different labs and got people to participate in whatever studies were kind of sure. going on. And um, we were all given uh, various uh, concentrations uh, in case something like this were to ever come up. They wanted to see what would be the minimum amount that uh, someone would need to be exposed to, to then, you know. Be immunized. Right, because, mm -hmm. you know, they didn't think it was what they used to use. They thought it could be much less. Wow, very interesting. So we were inoculated, and then we were tracked over, um, I think it was about a year, we would go in and give blood draws, and then we're on some kind of national registry. So if it ever out, yeah, they, we have to go in and give antibodies to it. So. Yeah, that is so cool. Isn't that that cool? is so cool. Absolutely. Yeah. So, what is an mRNA vaccine? You probably know what it is. Okay. But here it is right here. 
the production of basically an mRNA vaccine is a blueprint of a protein. And usually what they do is they pick a piece off of the vaccine. In the case of COVID-19, it's the spike protein that they give you. So they don't give you a full blueprint of the vaccine. They give you that piece of the vaccine that they think is going to endure through the various different variations, variants, mm-hmm. um, and in which it will be the 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 rep, the, the continuous um, uh, uh, piece of it, or the like a the, common denominator. Yes, common the common piece to it. Exactly, yeah. it's a great way to put it, um, and that's what they're looking for. And that's what they give you. And you develop antibodies to that, Mm -hmm. and you have them built up enough so that if you are exposed to it, you already have these antibodies that know that's the same thing. We need to go get it, and they can produce more because you already have a base uh, load of the antibodies. Right, and because you also, I mean, the whole thing about being inoculated with something is for quick recognition, right? Yes, so instead of trying to figure out what it is, your body already remembers. Correct. And so the defenses are um, mounted, you know, almost immediately, right? Correct. Right. Absolutely. So unlike a traditional vaccine, that's what that does. A, a, a traditional vaccine is an inactive microbe. Mm-hmm. It's the full microbe that is inactive. Again, viruses cannot be killed because they're not considered living. I, uh, yeah, are there cons- uh, when they say inactive, don't they mean attenuated and unable to reproduce? Yes, correct. Right. And so that's what, but you have to first create it, and they use various chemicals and things like that for that, that attenuated or attenuating process Mm -hmm. so that when they give it to you, they're not giving you active, I have recruited two, but I have, let me just answer, they're they're not giving you active or live, if you will Right, I know where you're going with this. I think the point is, is that a lot of people often, uh, I used to hear this with the flu all the time, say they got the flu after they received the flu vaccine. Flu vaccine is attenuated, you're not getting the flu. Now, you might feel poorly after any vaccine because that's the whole point of a vaccine, right, is to mount um, a, um, a response to uh, what you've been given. So often, you know, fever, you might feel poorly, but that happens to even our children when they're, you know, tiny and we're giving them all the normal yes. vaccines, immunizations. They often get fever and are cranky. Exactly the same thing. They aren't getting the measles. Mm-hmm. They aren't getting chicken pox. But mm-hmm. your body is still mounting a defense, and those things are side effects of when your immune system is active. Yes, and so, absolutely. So I wanted to bring this up because when I hear people say, oh, it's an mRNA vaccine, so? It's a messenger RNA vaccine. It's looking for a spike protein. That's what they do. That's what they created. Well, I think a lot of times that comes from people who maybe don't really understand that. And that's going to be a lot of our conversation. Yeah, they don't really understand mm-hmm. it. It sounds scary, and someone somewhere, media or something, or a friend who knows someone has told them that it's scary. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But I've had some very educated people tell me that, too. Mm. Very educated people. Hmm. So... 
and I'm frustrated by it. That's one of my things on the list. But before we get into it, yes, before we get into it, I wanted to talk a little bit about one of the things that I am so incredibly frustrated with is the disease itself. We're doing a lot of stuff for these patients and we are really, we're doing very good with supportive care. If, but we don't know what's working. Is the remdesivir working? Are the monoclonal antibodies working? Is the, are the steroids working? Is this a viral replication in the lung parenchymal tissue? Or is this an, unatte- or, or a, uh, an unmodulated uh, runaway inflammatory right. process? Which is it? So again, I went in and I did a lot of looking. It took me a long time to find this article that I think is absolutely incredible, written by Robert Mason, and it's Pathogenesis of COVID-19 from a cell biology perspective. Okay, where was it published? It's, uh, it's, here's the correspondence. Okay. It's, I'm just curious um, for my, myself. Yes, site article. Oh, uh, European, European Respiratory, Respiratory Journal. Okay, got it. There it is. Thank you. Okay. So this kind of goes through some of the infective part of it, you know, kind of how it happens and how they look for it with the, uh, with the uh, PCR, the polymerase chain reaction, DNA, RNA um, uh, mapping. And then it talks about how it gets into the upper airway, conducting air, an airway response in the next few days. And then it talks about hypoxia, ground glass infiltrates, and progression of the disease to ARDS. And this is really where the vaccine comes into play, which you were just talking about. If you only get to stage one, and even if you get to stage two, you're going to recover. Mm-hmm. When you get to stage three, this is, and it's about 20% of infected patients, and It's interesting because this paper has now convinced me that the problem is a viral load problem. And I'm going to show you why. There's a really good image in here that is just incredible. As opposed to an out-of-control inflammatory response? Correct. Okay. So things like um, cytosorb. That's why we're not seeing, you see these outliers, like, oh, it had great benefit for this patient. Yeah. But we're not really seeing that translate into reproducible outcomes. Right. Because really the issue has to do with the virus killing these cells. And it talks about how when these cells get, these viruses get into your cell, and hijack your mitochondria and start replicating, they are killing that cell. Every cell this goes into, it is killing those cells. If you don't have an immune response to stop it, once it occurs, it is not reversible. So our outlier, for example, Michelle, I'll say the name, Michelle, I won't say her last name, She may have gotten to stage three, but it did not, somewhere along the way, it stopped replicating 
or her body stopped it from replicating, so she had enough lung tissue left. But I don't have any doubt, if you do PFTs on her, they're not going to be as good as they were at baseline and likely never will be. So uh, this article, and I don't want to read the whole thing. I want people to go in and find it and read it. They can get it. it right here. But I wanted to show you this diagram. And what you're looking at here is human alveolar type 2 cells infected with SARS-CoV-2. Human type 2 cells were isolated, cultured in vitro, and then infected with SARS-CoV-2. Viral particles are seen in double membrane vesicles in the type 2 cells, which is on A, the left side. And if you look right here, you can see them all. You can see the virus particles. Uh, what's going on here? Oh, I guess that won't work. The pen doesn't work on this, does it? Yeah, no, yeah, you can see them. Yeah. Make it another color, though. Can't yeah, see it. Absolutely. Maybe red. Yellow. Oh, red. Yeah. There you go. There. So look in here. Yeah. See the virus particles? So those see little the virus dots? Part yep, all these little dots. And if you look over here at this, you're looking at the apical microvilli, which are on the inside of your alveoli to increase surface area mm -hmm. and also for secretions and mm -hmm. also for some other, some other things that it does. But you can see them all around here. Because mm -hmm. all those this... really dark spots are the viral particles. Correct. Okay. And this goes on to explain how these virus particles go and work and then destroy these cells. So if you, and of course we are uncertain what we're doing, but this is a very good point. It says, as we await the development and testing of specific antiviral drugs. Now remdesivir existed when this was written. It was being used when this was being written. And this goes, that's good on my slides for now. And when you go to people who are saying, I don't want to take something because it was rushed through or yeah. because it's experimental, what do you think we're doing to you when you come into the hospital and you need all of these medications and ECMO for supportive therapy, and that's another one of my things that I want to talk no about, is that there's a big belief that we are curing people and we are not curing anyone. No. It is purely supportive, and that's it. If the, you know, we've had several patients on ECMO that have gone on to have very, very, very low lung volumes. Their lungs became so incredible incredibly stiff and they ended up with a tidal volume, an inspired tidal volume, more than double the expired tidal volume because it was all going out the chest tubes because they just kept blowing holes through their lungs. So or what about the ones that we had tidal volumes that were 70? Right, with <laughs> and, a pressure of 50. Yeah, and that's all that's all they and could do. And it should do. be 500, 700 with a pressure of 18. Yeah. Oh, look, I think we have The John lung just us. cannot tolerate that kind yeah. of thing. So, you know, this is, uh, this is a, a real problem, mm -hmm. a real concern, a real problem. And so I would say um, 
People that tell me they don't want to take the vaccine because it was rushed through and because it's experimental know very little about vaccines, number one. Mm -hmm. And number two, I think those people should take into consideration that they're coming in, getting priority in the hospital. They're being treated. They're consuming a lot of resources. They're making a lot of other patients with diseases have to be held off. And they're certainly allowing for a lot of experimental stuff to be done for them. And it's frankly um, discouraging to me and, and quite frustrating. Yeah. Can we pause for a minute and welcome John? Hey, yes, John. Yes, John. Hi. How are you, bud? Hey, guys. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Yeah. You have any comments? All right, great. Hey, yeah. I, I just was uh, had a bunch of stuff going on, so I just tuned in, and I said, well, maybe I can tune in and, and, uh, and uh, join the conversation. Yeah, you bit. joined at the perfect time because we're ready to really be talking. Yes. A lot. Oh, so we've got about 20 minutes, and then I'm going to have to leave. But uh, let, me, uh, let me do this. So here's our topics, John. Do you have any comments about what we've done thus far? Have you watched it? I just tuned in not even about Good. three minutes okay. ago. Okay. I just started listening. Is this a viral replication in the parenchymal tissue, or is it an unmodulated inflammatory response, or both? And it could be both, but it is both. definitely a, uh, a, a viral replication in the parenchymal tissue that there are not enough antibodies. And if you get enough of your lung tissue killed with the virus uh, that is, of course, causing apoptosis of your, of your pulmonary cells, um, you're going to die, unless you get a lung transplant. Okay, so um, the next one, hospital, oh, yeah, hospital mandates on employee staff being vaccinated. Well, it's not just hospitals. You'll see it in the news, right? Right. Other companies are doing it as well. But I'm saying for the sake of our argument, since we're healthcare workers and people watching us are probably healthcare workers, mm -hmm. um, how do you feel about it? I don't think there's a problem with that. I think you... Um... You know, I understand the, the perspective that, uh, you know, it's a, a personal choice whether or not you want to see a doctor and have a procedure, and I understand that perspective. However, I do, uh, this is not new. Um, there are places that require certain vaccinations, uh, you know, for your children, uh, mm -hmm. flu shots. Uh, you know, if you, if you don't like the uh, stipulations and requirements on your job, get another job. Agreed 100%. John, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm glad you went over that, uh, how that vaccination works, Joe. I, I just saw a little part there about the mRNA aspect of it. And um, I think people do have, have a misconception that you can get a disease from the vaccine. Yeah. Um, like Tammy was saying about the number of people that said, I got the flu from the flu shot. Yeah. Right, exactly. Right. I mean, it, yeah. it just takes a basic understanding of uh, just think back when your kids get sick. When mm -hmm. I mean, we take our babies in to be vaccinated for all kinds of things, and no one thinks the baby got the measles because they ran a fever and were cranky the next day. They thought that's what happens when you get a vaccination. Right. Absolutely <laughs> true. Yeah. So what well, do you think? Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Pediatricians, pediatricians, as a general rule, are very good about pre-warning parents that, you know, that that's going to happen. And I think as adults, maybe we've forgotten about that. Yeah. You know, we don't have any parents telling us, oh, you might feel bad the next day or two. Or, you know, well, how come nine people didn't and I was the only one that did? You know, something must have been yeah. wrong with mine. Mm -hmm. Of course. Of course. 
What do you think about this whole uh, requirement of, of vaccinations for employees at hospitals? If you're kind of watching the news, you're kind of seeing this whole requirement to for admission, so to speak, for various things is just starting to creep in more and more. I don't know if you've noticed, mm -hmm. but I think now it's federal employees on some level. I think New York has gone to uh, all public transit employees or something mm -hmm. like that. It's it's slowly creeping in, and I think I think you're going to just continue to see it um, more and more in our society. And, and, and one day it'll come where, you know, just like when you work in the hospital, they don't say you have to have the flu shot, but to be honest with you, you have to have the flu shot. Right. You know, mm -hmm. Otherwise, they, they, they put a red, a red scarlet letter on your Well, on your and I think it really comes down to it's not a matter of control over people. It's a matter of trying to control a situation that I think no one wants to continue living this way. Correct. I don't. That's, that's true. That's a very good point. Okay, mm -hmm. but John, you just brought something up very interesting, and I think this will be a great point next. Your slide's not up anymore. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm oh, we so got a sorry. mirror. We lost the mirror. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> so while you're saying doing that, you know, we have variants way past Delta. Yeah. Uh, they're way into Lambda and mm -hmm. beyond. There's like LMNO. I don't know how many uh, more there are past Delta. It just happens to be that the Delta one basically transformed itself into a more highly contagious one, apparently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's throw that up. Perfect. Okay. Next one. University of Washington. I just got through reading a report oh, yeah. where if you are a uh, transplant candidate, is everything okay? I see it blinking and stuff. Oh, okay. So everything's okay? Mm, still blinking. Yeah, it's blinking a little bit. Mm -hmm. hmm. Okay. Is that, the is that the University of Washington that's so, mandating that employees? Or so, was just a general, no, no, hold on. University of Washington, if you are a transplant candidate, blinking. If you're mm -hmm. a transplant Maybe candidate. Maybe just take it down. We don't need it. Yeah, I agree. Just take it down. There we go. Okay. If you're a transplant candidate and you have not been vaccinated or refused the vaccine, you go to, and I forgot what it's called, something category or whatever, seven, which means you're not off the list, but you cannot get the vaccine. I mean, get the transplant. So if it's a solid organ transplant, kidney, heart, liver, other than lung, if you're there for COVID because your COVID has consumed your lungs and you are getting a lung transplant because of COVID, then you have, if you do not get the vaccine, you do not get your solid organ transplant. So I'm not there for lung transplant. I have something wrong with my kidneys, but I've been, I'm unvaccinated and I refuse to become vaccinated. You're, I'm at the bottom of the, the list. You're not only on the bottom of the list, you're still on the list but ineligible for the transplant. In other words, you don't get kicked off the list. You have to go through that whole process again, but you are basically ineligible you're to in, get the uh, organ that may be perfect for you until you get that vaccine. You're in a holding place. Correct. You're in the waiting room, but Correct. you can't leave until you get vaccinated. Correct. Wow. And I think you're going to see that happen more 
and more as time goes on. Mm -hmm. Because I'm sorry, you can all be mad at me if you want to, but I feel like you have to take some level of personal responsibility. Again, it's okay for you not to want the vaccine. Mm -hmm. It's not okay for you to consume all of the resources that are being consumed by the, in the hospitals, the human resources, the equipment, the disposables, everything the else, space. the blood, you name it. The beds. In deference to other people who also need it. Our hearts are canceled again. Orthopedic surgery is canceled again. Neurosurgery is canceled again. Everything is getting canceled I mean, I just, and having to wait, and it is unfair. I just talked to someone, a personal friend, who is a cancer survivor. Obviously, when you go through something like that, you're in a support group with other people going through that, and their cancer friend, if you will, now can't get the procedure that she needs because of all of this. And she's at a dire state. Like a bone marrow transplant or something? or I don't know the specifics. Mm -hmm. But she's not allowed because they've shut everything down. And this just it's just unfair. And she's at a critical it's stage unfair. in her. And so this could make the difference in her life. Yes. Because, and I understand that happens all the time, right? But again, this is a, someone's personal choice that they've decided for themselves, and if you want to decide that for yourselves, but it's the the it's the ripple effect to everyone else. Well, no, you want to make that choice. You're on a waiting list. If we have X number of patients in the hospital, and there's no further room, right? In other words, other people are ahead of you, and you have to wait, and that might mean your life. Yeah. I think it is incredibly selfish, and I'm frustrated as can be. And listen, I, I, I tend to be biased towards more conservative news channels, mm -hmm. um, but I'm very frustrated listening to them talk about not getting this vaccine mm -hmm. in the people, you know, well, you have such a low chance of having a problem. The problem is, the low chance of having a problem, if enough of those people have a problem and they are having a problem, the system becomes overwhelmed. Right. They don't see that. And I think that their, their thought processes about, well, this is freedom and this is America and you can make that choice. Absolutely you can, mm -hmm. but don't come running for help when you yourself have made a choice to not do something to help yourself, help us help you. This is ridiculous. Yeah. And I'm totally frustrated. I'm totally flustered by it. Because this is, I don't know what you're going through there, John, but our fourth surge, this is the worse worst. than the third. And I didn't think it could be worse. And, I, I, you know, I've been doing this job for 43 years. I always thought I would... You know, I'm still good. I'm still feeling good, still feeling strong. I can keep doing this. I don't know that I want to. For the first time in my career, I'm actually feeling like I've had enough of this nonsense. I think this is the worst. Mm -hmm. I think this is worse than any of the surgeries. Yes, and I have to hold on because I can't, you can't leave now. That'd be abandoning ship. Yeah. You know, you can't. You know, uh, 
And Tammy, we, um, now you know we're a major referral center, but it's, this is still a big number I'm about to tell you, and, and, and if you understand what I'm about to say. Today is Thursday. Oh, last Saturday and Sunday, Friday and Saturday, uh, Sunday at the weekend, Saturday and Sunday, we turned down outside requests for us to accept 12 urgent ECMO potential patients through our unit. That's a big number. Turned down. And another three or four this week that I know of. That's yeah. a big number. About a five-day period. I mean, and we can't take them. We can't take them. Where? They're at a center that doesn't do ECMO, but they know that, you know, they're one of our feeder, our feeder mm-hmm. centers, which we have a bunch. And the onslaught is, you know, every two hours somebody calls and says, can you take this patient? The last two patients we did accept, 24 years old, both of them. Yep. Very yeah. young. Yes. Our, us too. We're now, too. you know, that's not to say we haven't had a, we've had a couple of successes, but they're outliers. Very much outliers. Our... And we do ECMO very well. And it's not just us. It's when I talk to the people that I know in the medical center and other places, the outcomes with this are nowhere close to comparable to what it was with H1N1. Not even close. Um, it's very low. And, uh, we, but we have some successes and that becomes what people see. That's what goes on the news. And then people decide, oh, we need to, we need, we, I want my family member to have ECMO. It's a finite resource. It is. And, you know, the, the, the more valuable the resource, in other words, you know, the more, the greater the need, the more selective you need to be to pick people who are most likely to be successful. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're, you know, like you, we've said this so many times, John, I know you'll agree, this isn't a quick fix. So you are going to have your machine, your people tied up for a very long time with, with one patient. With one patient and who, who, you know, may not be the best candidate and then another great candidate comes along and all your devices are in use. Right. And so now someone who had a higher probability of actually surviving, recovering, doesn't have that therapy available. Right, because you can't just go turn it off. No, you can't. Okay, let's go to the next one. Can we pull these slides back up? Try to mirror again. Try to mirror again. No. Trying to fix something. No, I just blew it. Hold on. There, it says it's checked. Okay. Okay. And so there you go. So the next one we have is prioritizing patients that have chosen to not be vaccinated. Well, we just talked about that. So I'm going to skip that one. I think we discussed it. Experimental vaccine myth and the news. Yeah. Again, we've been making vaccines. Uh, Why is it doing that, guys? Well, let's just keep going. Well, just take it down. Okay. I I don't want to keep looking at it. We, we have been um, doing vaccines for hundreds of years. And, yes. and in fact, this specific vaccine has been in study since the first um, MERS, you know, a long time ago. Right. We were looking at these. Coronaviruses. Yeah. We right. were looking at these types of things. Mm-hmm. And I think, too, people get afraid of the emergency authorization use from FDA. That doesn't mean that it's. They haven't checked it. 
Right. <laughs> That's not what it means. We have one of, if not the lengthiest uh, parameters for getting yeah, to, to get things Approval out process. to the public. It doesn't mean mm -hmm. that things can't be used uh, before then safely. And I think everybody knows about people going to other countries to get treatments that haven't quite made it here way before this, and nobody seemed to have a problem with that. Right. Right? Right. Something's approved in Europe, and I'm going to go to Europe, and, and, right. and or I'm going to go to Mexico, and I'm going to do that. It has nothing to do with, um, it, it's because of the frenzy that is associated with what we're in right now, I think. I agree. Okay. So our next one on the list is, we have had successes, but. So we have had successes, we have. but. Um, we have done somewhere around 65, mm -hmm. 65 COVID ECMOs. Yeah. Um, early phase, we had some good success. Meaning S they came off ECMO and went home? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Second surge, we had a little less success, but still some success. Third surge? Abysmal. Abysmal. Well, except for the one. Right. It was abysmal, but we had, we had one or two. Well, we didn't have zero. We didn't have zero. But it wasn't good numbers. It's less sure. than 10%. Yes. It is less than 10%. It was 8%, I, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. And I talked to somebody today at the medical center. One of the cases that they did, which was in the news, it was an airline pilot from, uh, from uh, British Airways. Mm. And he was on ECMO, and he got off ECMO, and they got him discharged from the hospital. They had a big to-do. They showed it all. Uh, he went back to England um, and was continuing to convalesce, and he died of pulmonary failure. Complications from the COVID. Very strange. Very strange indeed. Strange. But I think that people that watch this program that may not be healthcare practitioners somewhere along the way, because I've gotten calls from people. And so I know people, general public right now, because their family member's very sick, are calling saying, I want my family member to get ECMO. Mm -hmm. Well, ECMO is not always a solution. ECMO is not appropriate for everyone. There is not enough ECMO, they're not, they're not aspirins. These are, these are very invasive devices, and there's only so many of them. There's only so many of us. So there's a limit. Well, and not just that. It's not appropriate for everyone. ECMO comes with its own problems. Absolutely true. Absolutely Lots true. Lots of problems. <laughs> and the more comorbidities you have, the less beneficial ECMO will be. Or the, the having it put in and managed at a place that doesn't have any immediate or frequent experience. Correct. Right. Then you're really opening a can of worms because ECMO itself can harm you. Yes. It has its own morbidity and mortality associated with it. Absolutely 100% true. Which brings up use of ECMO and resource utilization, marketing, public information, and the finite nature of the resource. So mm -hmm. use of ECMO and resource utilization, I think we've already discussed it. It's really high. Marketing. Companies and people are greedy. 
and they will market something and oh this will work as an ECMO and every center should have an ECMO and every center should do this and every center should do that. Tammy, I think you say it best. Please tell our audience how strongly you feel about a place that has never done ECMO getting sold a pump that can be used as ECMO and just putting a patient on ECMO because they can and because the company selling it is selling them on, this will put your hospital on the map as an ECMO center. Well, it's not that places that don't do ECMO won't be able to put a patient on ECMO. They will, like the actual mechanical techniques, sure, probably they'll be able to. But managing it is completely something else. And then, especially in this climate, all the hospitals are full. You are, you, if you get into it, your family members now on ECMO, as a caregiver, you're not really sure how you're going to manage this. You may not be able to get it out. In fact, you likely are going to be with that ECMO until it does whatever it's going to do. And if you don't have experience managing it, it's not going to be something good. Mm -hmm. These patients aren't just snapping off of ECMO. It's weeks, months of careful management and your setbacks. Yeah, you're going to managing. Well, that's setbacks. what I was going to say is, it's not just I got on and I've got to do this and we just got to wait it out. There are going to be problems almost weekly, huge problems that you're going to have to overcome, and they're not the same. I'm going to tell everybody a story. For one patient, it's one thing. For another patient, it's something else. There's bleeding. There's anticoagulation protocol. There's cannula position and malposition and, uh, and, and uh, migration. There's cardiac output. There's rhythm disturbances. There's temperature management. There's stroke risk. There's uh, 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 feeding them, mobilizing yes. them, moving the feeding. Uh, uh, there's, 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 there's infection risk. There's... there's renal failure, there's, there's fluid balance management, we just go on and on and on and on. It right. just doesn't end. I mean, it's very serious. This is a big, big deal. But we, we see it as just an ECMO because we do it all the time. But when we really look at it, not something anyone should just be embarking on for the first time because they think they can because this device runs itself. You don't even need a perfusionist. You can just do it with a nurse. This no problem. In a community hospital, that's, 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 that, in my view, is malpractice. That's what I think. I wanted to tell you this, though, because you were there. I, just to show you how complicated this is, I had a doctor. Now, this was a patient who was um, younger, had an extremely hyperdynamic heart, big-time cardiac output, was on VV ECMO, and their arterial sats were still low. The PO2 coming out of the oxygenator was 350. Mm -hmm. The patient's arterial PO2 was only 55. Mm -hmm. And this physician could not understand how that could possibly be. Now, I have no perfusionists who don't understand that. I know nurses that don't understand that. I know doctors that don't understand that. 
If they don't do ECMO, they're not going to understand that. And after explaining it, now that very same patient actually ended up in a different hospital, we got the patient transferred, and having to use two circuits mm -hmm. in order to have enough flow to accommodate their high cardiac output with no native lung contribution. But I've had physicians, perfusionists, nurses, who simply cannot understand that, and it's really hard to get them to. But for us, it becomes second nature, and we just assume everybody knows. So that's something I think is very important. Public information, look, there's a lot of information out there on the web. I think people believe that my family member is, is I want them to live. We all want to live, right? Yeah. We want our family to live. And we need to get him on ECMO. We need to get him somewhere where they have ECMO. Um, I, I say get vaccinated. I say get vaccinated so you don't need ECMO. Because this fourth surge is worse than the third surge, and the third surge almost broke our backs. The second surge and the first surge was pre-vaccine, so I'm a little bit different about the feeling on it. Mm -hmm. But right now, every resource is being thrown at people who are choosing not to be vaccinated, and public information is failing this country miserably, and I'm fed up with it. If you don't want to get the vaccine, and you have a bad outcome, I think you need to accept the consequences of your actions at this point in time. Well, and I just need to say it because I'm a little softer around the edges than you are. Hmm. We want to care for everyone. That's not it. It's that there is not enough to go around. So if you choose not to do this, it's, it's unreasonable. I think for anyone to assume that they're more important than someone else when it comes to care. Absolutely fair point. Effective pandemic on perfusion training and new graduate exposure. Well, so we're, we're going through that right now. Going through it right now. We have hired two new graduates. Smart. Excellent at their craft and they're getting almost no exposure. Right. They are doing ECMO. They're getting really good at ECMO. <laughs> right. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a shame. And it's happening to students that are actually currently in school, right? Mm -hmm. Because they aren't getting as much uh, exposure to cases either because cases are down. Mm -hmm. So these students are going to have to get their cases to graduate. Mm -hmm. How are they going to do that? It's a really good question, and I think that uh, it's going to be a, it is going to be something we are going to be dealing with for a very long time, uh, because when we do get this resolved, and it will be, I know this too shall end, I say it all of the time, mm -hmm. and I don't mean to be so negative-seeming, um, but I am... Uh, it's I am, been a rough couple weeks. I am pretty frustrated. Uh, well, I'm frustrated at the, uh, I'm frustrated, like I said, I tend to be biased towards conservative news channels, and I feel like they are doing a horrible disservice uh, to the public at large in terms of talking regarding the uh, safety and uh, of these vaccines, the efficacy of these vaccines, and more importantly, the responsibility of a citizen of this country 
notwithstanding what our civil liberties actually are. So yes, you can choose not to get the vaccine, mm -hmm. but you should then also be willing to accept the consequences of your choice. And uh, I think that needs to be a message that is uh, given by a lot of people in a lot of places and it's not being done and I, I don't like that. Um, our new graduates, our students that are learning, I think this is unfair to them. I think it's unfair to cardiac surgeons that want to treat their patients, yeah. uh, to cancer patients that need lobectomies or lung res uh, wedge resections or whatever for their tumors, your friend, and everything else. I don't think that uh, just because you were irresponsible to not get the vaccine that you now take priority over a patient who maybe got a disease or something from not necessarily their bad behavior. Because, of course, smoking and cancer, yeah. you could make that same argument. I understand it's a slippery slope, but I do recognize that, and I respect that argument. But this is an ethical quagmire. Well, and we're in a pandemic for this. Correct. This exact thing. Yes, agreed. We are not in a pandemic for smoking cigarettes and cancer. Although Correct. it's terrible and it hurts people and I get all of that. There's lots of things well, we obesity do. and diabetes yeah, and, say, there, and heart there's, disease. There's all kinds of things. Right. You have to be personal. You have to take some personal responsibility here. However, but we treat everybody. Of course. Even the gangbanger that gets shot in the gunfight, we still give that person the same exact care that we would give the innocent victim of a drive-by shooting that had never done anything wrong, could be whatever. So we treat everybody the same, and so we ha and but when we do these programs, I can separate myself from that. I'm in the trench, and I got to take care of the problem in front of me. I reckon that's a responsibility we have accepted, which brings right. up my last point: mm -hmm. running a company and managing a department, and the needs of the hospitals are. Our customers, the patients who are our customers, and our own staff, and their own family trials and tribulations. It's hard. I mean, being in healthcare, you know, we, we signed up to do this thing. And this is a time when what we're doing is, is a very difficult time. You know, just like if you enlisted in the army because you wanted to go to college and there's no war going on and then a war happens mm. you know you you signed up for that good analogy uh when it was however it was and you have to take what comes with it right mm -hmm. um but this has been very enduring it's not been short-lived and um it can really take a toll on us as individuals and, and just trying to manage our own lives and our own, you know, issues unrelated to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. or, yeah, we have lives too. Yeah. Interestingly enough, <laughs> we have lives too. And, and uh, our children have birthdays and, 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 you know, just like everyone else, and it's hard. Well, birthdays, family members get sick, they get cancer. Again, unrelated to anything they did wrong. Um, they get uh, COVID themselves. They get, uh, 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 they get strep throat. They have uh, family members that are passing. And, and, and how do you tell somebody, 
you can't go see your mother or father or sister or brother while they're dying because we have these patients to take care of and we don't have enough people to take care of all of the patients as it is and you leave that's that much fewer that we can take care of so it's this not, is and it's uh, not unique to perfusion right it's no nurses it's it's everybody who's in healthcare yes you know yes which surprises me that there are healthcare professionals who absolutely adamantly refused to get the vaccine and uh, sued Methodist here in the medical center, uh, although it was thrown out reasonably and fairly. Uh, they're a, a company, and they can they can they can make whatever choice they want. And uh, I'm glad that was thrown out because I think it's the right thing to do. And right now, every hospital system is in fact requiring. Yeah, they're moving that way. If it hasn't, the deadline hasn't occurred. Uh, we're seeing that here. It's, they're all moving towards that. They're all yes. giving notice right. that if you don't have the vaccine, mm -hmm. that you're not going to have a place there in yes. the coming months. Yes. Well, there have been roughly, I think, 55 million people are fully vaccinated right now, okay. something like that, or 55%. So that's actually more than that. It's 150 million people. Okay. It's a lot. The vaccines were unsafe. I think we'd know it by now. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, you can't see the slide, but it says that's all, folks. Um, and I <laughs> Can really you do the voice. No, and <laughs> I uh, I worked really hard at making this the animation on this slide, but uh, but unfortunately you won't be able to see it. So um, watch close us out. I think the next perf web that we're gonna do it's is Journal Club and Vanderbilt. Yes. So yes, bring it's... up the titles for me, please. Yes perfweb.us and I'll go to the schedule and it's going to be September 1st. Yep, in the morning mm -hmm. and we've got uh, the single ventricle physiology mm -hmm. with uh, Matt Warhoover, Katie Fela and um, Dr. Oh, yeah. uh, and uh, and uh, I think Tony Lapore and and Dr. Hoffman, Jordan Hoffman. Yep. And then you are doing the Journal Club on alternative technique of long-acting cardioplegia delivery results in less hemodilution. Mm -hmm. And John is doing ammonia blood levels. What does it mean? Yeah. Usually it's bad liver. Well, we're going to have to wait and see. That's yeah. probably going to be a nugget. Yes. And it makes you a little intoxicated, I think, when your ammonia levels are high. Yeah. Okay. I think we're done. I'm going to go to the hospital and put this ECMO on. We were... Uh, the folks at Memorial Hermann Memorial Children's were kind enough to loan us one of their pumps because we're out of technology and we had to get a truck and pick it up at the medical center and bring it back. It's arrived at the hospital um, and that's a pump that we normally don't use. So we're going to go do some modifications of our circuit so it'll work and we're going to go take care of another patient. So my final message is if you're not vaccinated, please get vaccinated. Just please. please. I'm, I'm really, I'm, at this point, I'm begging you. Thanks, everyone, for joining us, and we hope you have a great evening. We'll see you next time.